0: If you have a Bible, please open it to the 22nd chapter of Luke's Gospel. You'll find the notes in the bulletin, and if you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text written on the back of the notes. Luke chapter 22 and we'll read verses 31 to 38. We'll only be looking at verses 31 to 34 this morning, but 31 and through 38 really represent the final instructions Jesus gives to the disciples at the, the Passover meal, at the Last Supper, before they leave, and he is arrested and betrayed. Luke twenty two, thirty one 31 to 38, this is the word of the living God. <clears throat> Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, "Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death." Jesus said, "I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times, until you deny three times that you know me." And he said to them, "When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything?" They said, "Nothing." He said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Lord God, as we study this passage. We, we look at some heavy topics. Um, Satan, the God of this world, sifting, devouring, assaulting your disciples, your flock. And yet, even amongst that terrifying news, we see our great Savior, our great high priest, pleading, praying, interceding. And his prayers are sufficient. And so, Lord, as we look at this, help us to learn from it, the glories of of our God and Savior. Take seriously and soberly the dangers that beset us, that we might persevere faithfully to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, this morning we're going to look at the first four verses, verses 31 through 34. And in it is a familiar passage. Um, Jesus warns Peter, And the twelve, Satan has demanded to sift them and how he will respond. And really what we're going to see is two things. This warning that we will be, that the disciples will be sifted by Satan and yet sustained by the Savior. And the text really flows in three points. First, Jesus' dire warning. Now, you've got to set the context of, of what is going on here. This is, of course, still that night in the upper room, Thursday night. They've celebrated the Passover. Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper, warned them that one of them would betray him. What begins as a discussion about who will betray him turns into a discussion about who is the greatest. As people begin to defend themselves, surely not I. You can picture Peter, James, or John. Were you called up on the Mount of Transfiguration? I think not. It won't be me. And Jesus corrects them by showing them that true greatness is seen not in lording authority, but in serving, and serving in a way that reveals God's glory. And that's how Jesus serves, and that's the service he calls his disciples do. And without missing a beat, there's no connecting conjunction. As he finishes teaching them that, he turns to Peter. And you can't help but think, this is still connected to this notion of greatness. Jesus is going to pick the spokesperson of the twelve, the one who speaks for them, represents them most commonly, and he announces this Dire warning. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, he might sift you like wheat. Now, one of the important things to get here that not every English translation brings out, my ESV has a footnote to this, if you look in verse 31, if you have an ESV, at first you as a footnote, is that Jesus is, yes, speaking to Simon, but the you is what you call in the south the you all, it's plural. And so really, if I were to sort of make the, the southern standard version, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all, that he might sift you all like wheat. So he's giving the announcement to Simon, but the request of Satan is for the, the whole group. The whole group. So he's speaking to Simon and to the twelve. And that becomes clear when you see in verse 35. He just goes on, and he said to them. So he's speaking to Simon in front of the twelve about Simon and the twelve. And what he tells them is terrifying news. I would take it as terrifying news, especially given what's happened already. remember when Jesus sent out the the 12, and then he sent out the 70. They had authority over all demons. They come back rejoicing. Lord, even the demons and spirits are subject to us, and Jesus rejoices, and he says, I saw Satan falling from heaven like a star. So the the, the opposition to Jesus by Satan has been directed at Jesus, and it's been impotent. Jesus sets foot on um, the other side of Galilee in the Decapolis, and the demoniac with a legion of demons runs and surrenders. There's no fight, there's no, there's no tug of war, it's simply Jesus triumphing. Jesus commanding demons, they obey, they tremble, and now things change. Satan has demanded to sift them all, which raises a lot of interesting questions, which we'll look at some of. But first, what is the demand and why the shift in focus? Up to this point, the demons have been directly with Jesus. They're terrified of him, but directly with him. Why now this shift to the 12? I can think of at least two reasons for this shift in focus where Satan suddenly now wants to sift the 12. One, his huge success with Judas. If you look back at chapter 22, verse 3, we read, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. So Satan has completely gained control of one of the 12. Complete success there. Complete success. Perhaps that then makes him think, I want to go after the rest of them. The other reason is after Satan enters into Judas, the plot is made to betray Jesus. Satan now knows that the plan is lined up for Jesus to be dealt with. Perhaps now he's turning his attention to the 12. It will be the 12 after all who spread the gospel in the book of Acts. It will be these men who as Jesus sent ambassadors and emissaries preached the word For whatever reason, now, Satan has demanded to sift them all. And that picture of sifting is testing. I've never sifted wheat or flour, but I've sifted coffee. Um, I absolutely have. I had a little, you know, get one of those... um, those uh, twist popcorn makers, you can make yourself a home coffee roasting kit and you get some green beans and you put them in, you put them on the stove and, and eventually it cracks and the outer shell comes off. It's similar to what happens with wheat and then what you have to do is you've got to separate the chaff from the coffee or the chaff from the wheat in their context. I'm sure they weren't doing it with coffee, but that's my familiarity with it because you want the good valuable grain or the coffee or the, the wheat. You don't want the chaff and so you sift it to separate it You don't want the chaff getting mixed with your grain, and you certainly don't want the grain to get lost with the chaff. So what is is going on? What is Satan after? And Satan doesn't show up all that often in the Bible. But when he does, we begin to see some patterns about him. The first is he accuses God's people. Turn to the book of Job, chapter 1. And I puzzled over this for, for a while this week, just because... What what is Satan doing making demands of God? What right does he have to demand things of God? And yet, as we study the Bible, this type of activity seems somewhat regular. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So here's Satan in heaven in God's throne room, presenting himself to the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that you have said is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So the Lord, this is strike. the Lord brings up Job. It says, Satan, have you considered Job? He's righteous. He's faithful. He he loves me and he serves me. And the dispute of Satan seems to be it's not sincere. He does it for the stuff. You give him lots of stuff. You protect him from bad stuff and you give him good stuff. But if you give him the bad stuff and take the good stuff, he'll curse you to your face. What's the challenge? Job's faithfulness is insincere. And ultimately behind that, I believe, is an accusation at God. I don't believe ultimately Satan's concerned about Job. I think the real challenge to God is this. You are unrighteous in loving and treating Job graciously. Because he doesn't deserve it. He's corrupt. And so you are unrighteous, Lord. I think that's the logic of Satan. In in treating Job with favor, in being his friend. Because Job's not sincere, and you should know that. So from from the book of Job, which is one of the earliest books in the Bible, Satan appears to have some purview, some prerogative that God seems to tolerate, respect, I don't know, in testing and sifting the genuineness of the faith of God's people. In fact, when he next shows up, you don't need to turn there, but in Zechariah, if you remember when we studied through Zechariah, we have this scene. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the angel of the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. So here's another courtroom scene, and Joshua the high priest is being installed as the new high priest as the people return from Babylon. And the picture is, here's the accuser getting ready to say, He's not qualified. He's filthy. He's filthy. He can't lead anybody. He can't priest over anybody. He's corrupt and dirty. Same exact concept. Here's the accuser challenging the credentials, the validity of this one. And even more pointedly, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 10, we hear this. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So one of the activities Satan is involved in, very insistently, consistently, and passionately, to which our Lord seems to tolerate or allow, is to constantly challenge the credibility of God's people's faith. They're not sincere. They're, look at what they're doing. They don't really believe you. They don't really love you. They're, and in, by implication, you are unrighteous in loving them. You are unrighteous in calling them your people. Because ultimately, point two, he desires to devour their faith. He desires to devour their faith. And Peter has learned from this instruction, 1 Peter 5.8 eight. He warns us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And maybe one way of thinking about it is that Satan is absolutely intent that not one piece of chaff gets into heaven. Not one piece of chaff escapes his kingdom. No, no, no. I'm going to inspect every so-called grain. I'm going to inspect every so-called believer to verify, to make sure, and where he can to devour their faith to unfold them into his kingdom. At the best as I can figure out, that's what it goes on. And, and understand, the devil has had a lot of practice at this, thousands of years of practice at this. This is terrible news for the disciples, for Peter. The God of this world, as Jesus calls him, the prince of the power of the air, has these 12 men, or now 11 men, in his sights, and he wants to sift them. And trust me, when Satan sifts somebody, they get sifted. Which then brings up the implication of the the next thing that's troubling, which is this. Again, if I were Peter, I might think to say, well, God said no, right? (laughs) Why on earth would God listen to Satan? He's demanding things from God. He's the enemy. He said no, right? Phew, that was a close one. No, apparently, point C, God has granted this request. Everything that Jesus says next in verse 32 assumes that. As Jesus is in effect saying, and here's what I've done in response to that. Which, which brings up, like I said, a very troubling question. Why would God entertain, why would God grant the requests of his arch enemy? I'm going to read a little piece from John Piper on this that I found helpful. Um, he, he recognizes the question, why would God grant to his arch enemy any of his demands? But as soon as you start to think about that question, you realize it's Parts of a much larger one. Namely, why does God tolerate the activity of the devil at all? Revelation 20, verse 2 and 3, tells us that at the end of this age, when Christ returns, God is going to bind and confine him for a thousand years that he should not deceive the nations. Then, after a thousand years, the final victory of God, he will be thrown into a lake of fire forever. God has the right and the power to put Satan out of commission. And the question we must ask... And our finitude and ignorance is why doesn't he do it now? Why go on century after century permitting Satan to wreak havoc in the world? I think the scriptures indirectly suggest a possible answer. I think the reason God permits Satan to persist in sifting his work is that in the end, this will prove to be for the good of the church and the glory of God. It's clear from the whole New Testament that God intends to bring the bride of Christ to perfection through affliction and temptation. We must suffer with Christ if we'd be glorified with him. Though suffering and trial, our faith is refined, we are drawn to rely ever more on God. He gives this final illustration. Not only does the ongoing work of Satan ultimately do good for the church, it also brings glory to God. He says this, I picture God as an omniscient general, whose aim is to fight and to win the war in a way that most brings glory to his magnificent strategic wisdom and power. So instead of simply steamrolling over the enemy all at once, he combines strategic advances and strategic retreats that allow the enemy some illusion of success and brings out all their ignorance and hate for the general so that it can be seen for what it is. In his great wisdom, the general knows when and how the end should come. He will give way for a time to allow the enemy to rage in defiance. And then when sin is seen for all that it is, he will close in and destroy the enemy in such a way that none can doubt the wisdom and glory and power of the general. And that is a helpful illustration. Because here's God's arch enemy, if you will, making demands of God and implicitly God has granted this request. Which brings us to the next difficult point, which is God is sovereign, and if you picture that God as a chess player against the devil, which I think sometimes people picture, and so you've got God, is he's going to win, but it's going to be close, and God makes a move, and Satan makes a counter move, and then God makes a counter move, and it's going to be a nail-biter down to the very end, but we're confident God will win in the end. That, that is not the picture of the Bible. Satan has to get permission to do stuff from God, And yes, he is God's enemy. He's defiant. He's a rebel. Yet there's a profound sense in which, point one, Satan is God's subject. We see it in Job. Ask permission. We see it here. He asks permission. In Zechariah, you be quiet. He's quiet. And when God wants to kick him out of heaven, he's thrown out of heaven in Revelation 20. Satan is God's subject. God is sovereign. He is in control. Listen to, this, listen to this passage from 1 Kings. In 1 Kings, one of God's prophets goes up to rebuke Ahab. Ahab is getting ready to form an alliance with the uh, king of the south to go have a joint venture. And we hear this. We get a picture of a scene in heaven. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said, and the people he's talking to are angels and some other folks One said one thing and one another, then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he says, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do it. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster. Against you. So when Ahab's prophets of Baal say, You will succeed, and they do it under the influence of spirits, that happens under the sovereign oversight and control of the living God. Satan is, as my old pastor used to say, God's Satan. He's on a leash, he has to get permission, he rages, he's powerful, he's terrifying, he is subject to the commands of the living God. Which then, of course, raises a question, then how does God not stain himself with such activity? I mean, could we not then think that all the temptation and all the trials coming upon God's children are really God's fault if Satan has to get permission? And yet James insists he himself tempts no one. And there's a mystery here. Pastor Daniel, last week, referred to our series on election and predestination. We deal with this thoroughly there. But I'll simply say this. And we'll see this even in this text a little bit later. God has a good purpose in Satan's evil. God has a good purpose in Satan's evil. So make no mistake, Satan's request and his desire is evil. It comes from a wicked heart. Even the way Jesus phrased it, he's demanded. You see the audacity, the boldness, the corruption in him. And yet, even though Satan's intention in sifting Simon and the twelve is corrupt and wicked, he wants to destroy them, he hates them, he wants to show them as false. he wants to make them fail, God has a very good purpose in granting that request. God is doing good here in saying yes. God is not doing anything wrong when he says yes to Satan's request. And we'll see that as the text follows out. So first, Jesus' dire warning to Simon and the twelve. Next, we get one of these wonderful but statements. here's the bad news, but. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now we see Jesus' faithful intercession. In fact, I'd suggest one of the reasons why it's good for God to allow the disciples, to allow us to be sifted, is so we can see these types of wonderful attributes of our Savior. Because Satan's... Sifting is what precipitates and, and prompts Jesus to do this intercession. Jesus prays on behalf of his disciples. It just boggles the mind how Jesus epitomizes the ethic that he just taught his disciples about the one who is great serving. He, this is hours before the cross. This is the last. Respite of peace and quiet before the cross. He's going to go to the garden. He's going to pray. He's going to sweat as the drops of blood. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be nailed to a tree in a few short hours. What is Jesus thinking about his disciples? Was he praying about them? It's marvelous. Jesus prays on behalf of his disciples. And notice Jesus' prayer is both individual and corporate. He only says that the you's here, by the way, shift in verse 20 to 32 to singular. So the, both of the you's in verse 31 are the y'all, all of you, plural. But in 32, I have prayed for you, Simon Peter, that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And initially, again, when I read this, I thought, well, what about the other 10? What about them? He is thinking about them because in praying for Peter, he wants Peter to strengthen them. So he's got all of the disciples in view. His prayer is individual and personal. He's praying for a person, Simon Peter. But he's praying for Simon Peter with the rest of the disciples in view. So he cares what the individual disciple, he cares what the corporate disciples. Jesus' prayer is both individual and corporate. But I want to notice something else. Jesus does not pray this way for the world. This chapter began with a betrayal. Judas, Satan entered into him. He went off and he agreed to betray Jesus. And Jesus here announces to Peter, you will betray me. Two men betray Jesus in one night. One of them hangs himself and goes to hell. The other weeps bitterly, repents, returns, Preaches the first sermon at Pentecost, thousands are saved, writes two books of the New Testament, and is a leader in the early church. What accounts for that difference? And the danger is to say, well, Peter's just a better sort of chap than Judas. Peter just had a bit more grit and determination than poor old Judas. The difference is Jesus prayed for Peter. And there's no record of him praying this way for Judas. And I want to make this point clear. Turn over to John 17. It's here by implication. Both men are going to be sifted. Both are going to fall. Only one's getting back up. And Jesus says, the reason you're getting back up is because I prayed for you. But you might think, well, he doesn't mention it, but perhaps he prayed for Judas. It's explicit in John 17. John 17 actually jumps a few hours ahead in our evening. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. It's referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in the first Five verses, Jesus prays for himself. Then in verses 16 through, 20, through 19, he prays for the disciples. And from verse 20 through 26, he prays for all of us. So let's look at his prayer for his disciples. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the world. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. and They have kept your word. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world. And they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. What Jesus is doing in this prayer is he's been keeping them. He's telling the Father, I've accomplished your work. I've brought them to faith. I've taught them what you wanted me to teach them. They know who I am. They know who you are. And I've guarded them, but I'm about to head to the cross. And in that Time, those hours where Jesus is bearing sin, where he is separated, alienated in some sense from God, he will not be able to guard his sheep. And so he's begging, pleading, requesting that his father guard the disciples while he can't. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, verse 12, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. That the scripture might be fulfilled. So understand that. There's no question about Judas's fate. He's the son of destruction. And Jesus let him be lost. That's what it says. I guarded them. Not one of them has been lost. Except, So this is intentional. He knows what the scripture says. This is hard. We're dealing with the sovereignty of God. It's not that Jesus kicked him out, made him fail. He's actively guarding the eleven in a way that he's not guarding the son of destruction. Because he's God, and he gets to do what he pleases. Back to Luke. Jesus prays, does not pray this way for the world. He does not pray this way for the world. Not to say he doesn't pray for the world, but these types of intercessory prayers are limited to his children, to his flock, to his people. I want you to notice point B, that Jesus' prayer secures their Perseverance. Just as Satan's request is assumed to be answered in the affirmative, so Jesus' prayer to the Lord is assumed to be answered in the affirmative. Because notice, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have been restored. Jesus doesn't entertain the slightest possibility that his prayer will be ineffective. If Jesus prays, and when Jesus prays, his prayers are answered by the Father. And so it secures their perseverance, when, not if. But notice again what Jesus didn't pray for. Jesus did not pray that Peter would triumph in the trial. Again, if I were Peter, I'd be a little chagrined, a little taken back. You could have prayed. Jesus certainly could have prayed. Lord, Satan's demand to sift them. May they all pass that test. May they all triumph, right? Overcome the world, overcome the evil. May they just stand firm and triumph. He doesn't pray that. When they fail, don't let their failure be final and ultimate. He prays that their faith will not ultimately fail them and die. It's the word we get eclipsed from, the sun just going out. So Peter will have a huge failure. He will weep bitter tears, as verse 62 said. But Peter's failure will not be the end of his faith. He will stumble, but he will rise. That's what Jesus is praying for. We're talking about perseverance, finishing The course making it to the end that at least here is what jesus is praying for we did not pray that peter would triumph and i also want you to notice because sometimes many times when we look at the sovereignty of god as it relates to these things we wrestle with human responsibility well if if ultimately peter's perseverance is decisively determined and fixed by jesus prayer then peter and the disciples can just kick back and relax not at all God's sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. Just look ahead a few verses. When they go into to the Mount of Olives, verse 39 of chapter 22. He came out and went as far as, his, as was his custom to Mount of Olives. The disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that ye may not enter into temptation. Which is meaningless if everything's decided and fixed. Again, in verse 46, "They don't." And he rebukes them, "Why were you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation." So the sovereignty of God and the power and the effectiveness of Christ's prayer for His sheep in no way mitigates or nullifies our responsibility to act, our responsibility to persevere. They work in some mysterious concert together. That's what we see in this passage. So Christ's prayer, he assumes, is effective when, not if. But even though Christ has prayed for them, and it will be effective, they still need to pray. God's sovereignty does not nullify human responsibility in any way, shape, or form. And and, and you wonder, why then, why did Jesus pray ultimately for the perseverance of Peter, but not for his triumph? Why did Jesus' prayer allow for Peter to fail? Peter will fail him in a huge way. He'll feel much shame and sorrow. I mean, again, look at verse 62. He went out and wept bitterly. And I've insisted that God has good purposes in all of this. Um, three, Three things. Point C here. Jesus will strengthen the disciples through a restored Peter. Jesus will strengthen the disciples through a restored Peter. I got these three things I can think of that are good for why Jesus would pray this way rather than let him stand firm. Because he could have prayed that. He could have prayed that. Jesus in his wisdom and his goodness prayed instead, Lord, Father, do not let his faith fail. Let him strengthen again the sheep. First, Peter's failure humbles him. Peter's failure humbles him. And God wants his children humble. The disciples have just been arguing about who is the greatest. Even though Jesus just warned them, one of them would betray him somehow. in their, their pride, that turned into a discussion of who is the greatest. And even though he gave Peter this dire warning, and even though he gave him the instruction back when he taught in the Lord's Prayer, Prayer, Lord, lead me not into temptation. And he specifically tells them that in verse 40. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. They are so overcome with sorrow In grief, they don't. And so he has to tell them again in verse 46, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Peter needs humbling if he's going to be an effective leader. Peter needs humbling if he's going to become more like Christ. And so God humbles him by not causing him to stand in this trial. So Peter's failure is Peter's failure. God doesn't put that into him. But what support could have been given is not given. And he falls. It's good of God to let this happen so Peter can be humbled. Second, Peter's failure equips him. Peter's failure equips him. I want you to listen to how Peter writes in his first epistle. In fact, t- turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see whether or not Peter learned anything from this. Because I think he did. And so I think this failure allowed by the Lord, not an ultimate failure, but a failure nonetheless allowed by the Lord served good purposes. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith. What power guarantees, what confidence do you have, do I have that tomorrow we're gonna wake up believing, tomorrow we're gonna wake up Christians through God's power, guarding me through faith. God's power guarding you through faith. Where do you think Peter learned that? Because his Savior said, I've prayed for you. I'm not gonna let you fall ultimately who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? Why would God let trials into their life? 1 Peter's all about trials and suffering. As he tells a perplexed church, the path Christ has called you to follow after him has a cross on your shoulder. But look at verse 7. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith. May I dare shift in sifted genuineness of your faith. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does God let Satan sift his sheep, his children, us? Because he intends it to be shown to be true and real, ultimately. And he intends that that genuine passing to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is praise and glory and honor that would not be present had there been no sifting. So Satan means it for evil. He wants to take us down, he wants to destroy us. God knows I'm praying for my sheep, Jesus says. He knows he will cause us to stand and it will result. And Peter's humility and Peter's equipping. How, how else does Peter know to write this except he lived it? And finally, Peter's failure serves to glorify God. And I word that carefully. Sin itself never directly glorifies God. God is displeased by it. But in the same way that Jesus' crucifixion serves to glorify God... In that through and by means of this travesty of justice, untold numbers of people are saved, redeemed. Through Peter's failure, think of this. What clearer way could God effect to make it clear that his message of the cross did not gain its footing in the Roman world because of how wise, how erudite, how cultured, how brave and how bold the apostles were. Stories like this remove any doubt that Christianity was fabricated by a bunch of really clever, really smart, really charismatic men. If if you're trying to make a cult, if you're trying to make a, a power play, you don't have your leaders do stuff like this, and you certainly don't write about it. So stories like this in the New Testament accounts have the ring of authenticity because they know, the, Luke writing this knows it's not ultimately about Peter. It's about the Lord who Peter serves. And when the Lord takes this broken man and restores him, and this fisherman, untaught letters, that's what the, this, this, the Pharisees are going to say when, in the book of Acts. These are untaught fishermen and they're overturning the world. Who gets the glory? See, that's exactly the type of service Pastor Daniel was talking about last week, isn't it? The service through trial and suffering and weakness so that the power of it being accomplished is seen to be from God. Peter's failure allows for all of that. That that is some of God's good purpose in allowing Peter to fall. Why, why didn't Jesus pray, I pray that you would stand? Well, at least for those three reasons. At least For those three reasons and give you one more gives me hope if god can work with a moron like peter and and he's he gets better but there are times he puts his foot in his mouth we'll see that in a second a pompous quick speaking hot-headed self-confident proud fool that he is god can work through him then maybe he can work through me maybe he can work through you if all we saw was God choosing the wise, brilliant, courageous, invincible, stalwart men, I think we'd all shrink back in despair. Those are some of the good things. So Satan is going to devour and sift, and they're going to go through the wringer, but the Lord has prayed for them, and he will make sure that even though they suffer some temporary defeats, they will stand ultimately. Their faith will not fail them ultimately. Which brings us then to Jesus' prophetic Rebuke. And here we see some of Peter's foolishness. I mean, he gets this dire warning. What does he say? Thank you for praying for me, Lord. It means a lot. Or maybe tremble in fear that Satan will attack him. Now, that'd be an appropriate, sane response. Instead, he corrects Jesus. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. You can almost read I'm not sure about the rest of these guys. But, as for me, I will go with you, even to prison and death. So we see Peter's confident boast. Peter's confident boast. And and the the phrasing in the Greek, emphatic, is the with you. He believes he's ready to suffer with Jesus. After all, that was the basis that Jesus commended them. Back in verse 28, he says, "'You are those who have stayed with me in my trials.'" But as Jesus approaches the greatest trial, the cup of the wrath of God, this is a cup none of them can or will drink from. And they will shrink back in fear and in terror, and Jesus will suffer alone. But Peter believes he's ready to suffer with you. He's with you, Jesus. I'll go to prison. I'll go to death. You see, he is self-confident, and he is proud. He's just been told that the adversary... Who lives to accuse God's people has targeted him specifically. He's just had Jesus tell him, You're going to fail when you've been restored, which implicitly means he needs restoring. But Peter knows better. He's not afraid of the devil, he's got better insight than Jesus. Lord, I'll go with you to prison or death. So, what Jesus says next has got a sting. He says it publicly, as we saw, it's in the front of all the disciples. Jesus says to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So understand, it's evening, the sun is set, it's evening, Thursday night. And Jesus is saying, before the rooster crows at sunup tomorrow morning, which in the Jewish mind is that day, remember the day starts with sundown. We're just talking a few hours hence, Peter. You're ready to go with me to jail death, Peter, before the sun rises, you're going to deny me three times. And we're going to learn it's just before. Not armies, not judges, not the Sanhedrin. Servant girls, servants. That's got a sting for Peter to hear. Notice he doesn't push back any further. He just drops it. Jesus' reply, that very night, Peter will deny him three times. One further thing to note from this before we try to wrap this up. And again, I've hit this over and over, and I doubt this is a, a problem you struggle with, but I, I encounter it so often in more of the academic, more liberal realms of Christianity. This belief that the crucifixion was some tragic error, some plan B, everything was looking good and it went wrong. Jesus is fully aware, and he has been, of the events of the crucifixion. He knows Peter will fail. He knows Peter will fall. He knows Peter will deny him. He knows Judas has gone and betrayed him. He said from as early as chapter 9, verse 20, clear as day, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, raised again. So what does this all mean for us? Turn, Turn to the book of Hebrews. I'll try to wrap this up before our closing song. Hebrews chapter 7. This is good news for us, okay? It is important that you and I run the race faithfully, that you and I run the race energetically, that you and I avail ourselves of God's grace, that we work out our salvation in fear and trembling. But decisively and finally, you're in my hope of perseverance. You're in my hope of making it firm to the end is not finally found in ourselves, but in our great high priest, that is the glorious truth we get from this. What hope do I have that Jeremy Kidder will finish the race? My Savior will hold me fast. My Savior intercedes for me. My Savior will finish what he began. He will not let me slip through his fingers. That's my hope. That's your hope. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 and 25. Let's start in 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. I mean, isn't that just a wonderful word? His salvation isn't just basic. He saves to the uttermost. How? Why? Those who draw near to God since through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession. What is Jesus doing at this very moment right now? He is in God's throne room, interceding on your my behalf, individually, corporately. Turn back to chapter four. Turn back to chapter four. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up just to read this final text. I want you to take great encouragement from this as we prepare to sing before the throne of God above. Hebrews chapter four. 14 to 16. This is one of my favorite passages. Because this priest's prayers are effective and they get answered. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us Then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us draw near in that confidence. Our great Savior is our great high priest and he sympathizes and he tells us to come to him. Let's stand as we sing.